please turn in your Bibles to the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth, as was mentioned earlier, we are taking a quick walk through the historical books this summer. So two weeks ago, we looked at Joshua, and last week, Judges, and this week, Ruth. And it's a really short one. The other ones have been kind of long. Next week will be even longer in 1 Samuel, but this is a short one. For those of you who are reading along with us each week, you're like, wait, there's only four chapters. What, what do I even do? You know, as, as our kids are doing that, you know, Anna Grace is like, oh, I finished like before last Sunday because like I just came to it and it's an interesting story and what am I going to read this week? Um, so it's good. We can kind of capture the whole thing really well. I don't want to say ahead of time really well. You can decide whether we capture it really well. But it's not too long. It's a great story and I'm really looking forward to looking at that with you today. So we're tracing in this series the story of Israel from that entrance two weeks ago into the promised land in Joshua through the periods of the judges where everything was bad. We're moving toward the period of the kings and then the divided kingdom then away into exile and back again. Most importantly we're exploring the story of how Israel points us forward to Jesus, the righteous judge, the perfect prophet, the ultimate king the great Redeemer. So we're going to see that this morning from Ruth, and our reading will be from Ruth chapter 4, just a few verses, verses 13 through 17. And Stephanie's going to come and read that for us now. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Ruth and what it teaches us about you, how you work in the world, and of your determination to save your people. Would you use this book... Uh, by your spirit to work on us today, to help us to see Jesus as the great Redeemer and to walk in his steps. So would you come now, Holy Spirit, lead us, guide us. Use what happens today to cause us to worship you, And for you to make us, bit by bit, into the people that you want us to be for your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The big idea this morning is this. So this is where kids, you can get ready to write. The big idea is this. In God's good providence, costly redemption leads to complete restoration. In God's good providence, costly redemption 
leads to complete restoration. Costly redemption leads to complete restoration. That's what we're going to see together from the book of Ruth. Now, just some kind of front matter. We don't know exactly when Ruth was written. It was written, we know, well after the events that take place in the book, and we know that from the last few verses of the book, even the ones that Steph just read for you right at the end. They named him Obed, the baby who's born. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And this is significant because, yeah, not that Jesse, (laughs) right? Um, The story is a lot older than that. Um, The father of David. It's significant because David is the king. And David was seen as the one that God chose. And it's because he was. He was the man after God's own heart. He was the one that God promised there will always be one of your sons on the throne. And so God's people in that time would be aware of that promise and would know this David, he's important in God's plan to save and to rule his people in his place for their good and for his glory. And so this story is one that would have been told to people in that time, something during Solomon's reign, to remind them this is how this happened. God cares about the intricate details. He's been planning to save his people for a long time. And of course, for those of us who know the rest of the story, we know that David isn't the end of that line, that that line goes all the way to Jesus, that this brief genealogy that closes the book of Ruth will be picked up in Matthew and continued all the way down to Jesus, the ultimate Redeemer, the Savior of his people. So we don't know when it was written, possibly during the time of Solomon, possibly a little bit later, but definitely not before David was king. And this story is set in the time of the judges. Now, if you were here last week, you know that that time was bad. Pretty much everything about it was bad. It's sometime near the end of the cycles of idolatry, followed by judgment, and then deliverance by God that we saw last week, which caused us to look for the ultimate ruler. So Ruth forms a sort of bridge from the time of the judges to David, who was God's chosen king, who of course points us to the ultimate king who gave his own life for his people. So in the midst of the epic and awful stories of the judges, the story of Ruth zeroes in on one family in one small town and how God was at work in their lives for his glory and their good, and not just theirs, but for the good of all his people for all time. So we look first then at what happens in the book of Ruth, as we're doing each week. What happens in this book? So we'll give you a few more things to write down. The first thing that happens is a bitter disappointment. Bitter disappointment. In chapter 1, Naomi and her family, so that's her husband and her two sons, they leave Bethlehem, which is one of those towns that came up near the end of the book of Judges a couple times and not necessarily in positive ways. People were not doing good things there. People from there were not being wise, not following God. They left Bethlehem in Judah, Bethlehem Ephrata, to go to Moab in order to escape a famine. There was a time where they hadn't had rain, they didn't have food to eat, and they thought, we're going to die, so we must leave and go 
to Moab. While there, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, dies. And her sons marry women from Moab. Now you remember the Israelites aren't supposed to marry people who aren't Israelites, but that's exactly what they do. They're away, they're of marrying age. Here are these women, we're going to marry them. Then about ten years later, her sons died. Then she hears that the famine has ended, that the Lord has given food again to his people, and she decides to go back home. When she does that, she tells her daughters-in-law, stay here. Get married again to someone else from your own country, your own people. And one of her daughters-in-law, Ruth, is absolutely determined to go with her. She's saying, no, don't come with me, don't come with me. And the other one, Orpah, eventually goes back and Ruth hangs on to her. She clung to her, we're told. She hangs on. She says, no, I'm going to go where you go. I'm going to stay where you stay. Your God is going to be my God. So this is more than just a love of Ruth for her mother-in-law. This is Ruth embracing all that it means to trust the Lord and to follow the Lord who is the king of Israel. And so finally, Naomi's like, all right, you can come. And the two of them travel to Bethlehem, and they arrive just as the barley harvest begins. When they get there, the women of the town, Naomi's old friends who haven't seen her now for years, they can hardly believe that it's Naomi. She tells them how the Lord has brought her back empty, with no husband, no sons, and seemingly no hope for the future. Now, she's not quite as empty as she thinks because she has Ruth. But the beginning of Ruth is a story of bitter disappointment, especially for Naomi. She tells the people, the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. But in chapter 2, we see surprising hope. On the other side of bitter disappointment is surprising hope. Hope. Chapter 2 opens with this verse that seems kind of out of place in the story. It says, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And then it just jumps right back into Ruth trying to figure out what are we going to eat? How can I get food? How are we going to survive? But Boaz, as we know, will loom large in the story. In chapter 2, Ruth goes out to work in the fields. So they have something to eat. You say, well, how would they do that if they didn't have a field? Well, in Israel, the people were commanded, this came from the law, the people were commanded to leave the leftovers. So if you went through with your harvesting, I don't know if they didn't have machines, right? But they had something. If you go back over it, once you've gone through once, you're not supposed to go back again. And you're supposed to intentionally leave the corners for particular people, for the poor who don't have their own land, for the immigrants, for the orphans, for the widows. These are spelled out in Leviticus 19.9, in Leviticus 23.22, and Deuteronomy 24.19-22. So it's very clear what they were supposed to do with their Land so that people in a tough situation like Ruth and Naomi would have a way to provide for themselves. 
So Ruth goes out to glean in a field, to get something from the edges or whatever gets left behind by the men who are doing the work in the field. And she just so happens, the text even says it this way, and she happened to come to the field that belongs to this guy who was introduced in chapter 2 and verse 1, Boaz. She just so happens to be at his field. And that's where she's working. And he just happened to come by where she was in the field that day. And of course we know, and that's why the big idea starts with in God's good providence, is that nothing just happens. She didn't happen to go to Boaz's field. He didn't happen to be there. This is what the Lord is orchestrating to redeem what was lost, to restore and make whole what was broken. And of course, Boaz then by sheer coincidence just happens to be a redeemer for Naomi's family. So chapter 2 introduces surprising hope. There's no hope, but then there is. There's a possibility of hope because of Boaz. Then in chapter 3, we see a bold proposal. So we had bitter disappointment, surprising hope. Chapter 3 is a bold proposal. In chapter 3, Naomi and Ruth come up with a plan, and then they execute that plan to try to have Boaz redeem Ruth and provide hope for the family. See, there were provisions in the law for buying back property for family members who had become poor and couldn't maintain it and had to sell it, close relatives would buy it back. That's the idea of the word redeem. They would redeem that land for them so that it could stay in the family. And then at the year of Jubilee, which came along every 50 years, that land would go back to the original owners. So the redeemer was an important person. We see that spelled out in Leviticus 25, verses 23 through 55. Those rules about redeeming property for others and how that works and how it goes back and doesn't be, belong to that Redeemer once we get to the year of Jubilee. And so Ruth and Naomi know this. They understand how this works. They understand that redeeming the land would also include marrying Ruth, that she's part of Naomi's inheritance, if you will. And so they come up with a plan for Boaz to notice Ruth and to want to marry her. To make it clear to him she wants to marry him. So Ruth kind of proposes marriage to him. And he accepts, sort of. There's one potential problem with this plan. There's a closer relative than Boaz. This is the part that like growing up I didn't really notice or remember. You just go like, you know, everyone dies, it's terrible. Then they come back home. Boaz notices her. She does the proposal. He says yes. They get married. A baby's born. David's the king. Isn't that awesome? But there's this little detail that takes up quite a bit of real estate in chapter 4. And it's that there's someone who's closer then Boaz, will he redeem her instead? And so chapter 3 closes with Ruth going back to Naomi and telling her the story of what had happened. And Naomi saying, just wait, Boaz is going to settle this today. And that's exactly what happens in chapter 4. So we saw bitter disappointment, surprising hope, bold proposal. And in chapter 4, it's redemption and restoration. Redemption and restoration. 
In chapter 4, that closer relative passes on the opportunity to redeem Naomi's land and to marry Ruth because it will mess up his own inheritance. He knows the laws too. He knows that if he redeems Ruth and if through their marriage a child is born, that child will not be thought of as his child. Now this is hard for us to understand because there's nothing that works this way that I'm aware of in our culture today. But this one who is the Redeemer is knowing his name is probably going to be forgotten and he's knowing his inheritance, that maybe he already has his own children, his inheritance will be in some danger and this person who really physically is his child won't even be considered his child. He's sacrificing for the good of another, for the inheritance of another. For the name of another. So the closer relative, when he realizes, he at first says, I'll buy the land. Maybe he's thinking he can make some money off it in the time before the year of Jubilee. And then Boaz kind of waits to the last minute to slip in. Oh, hey, I almost forgot to tell you, you get Ruth in the deal as a wife. And it's your job to raise up children for Elimelech and Naomi, their family, through that marriage. And he's like, oh, hey, no, that's, I was not planning on getting married today. I'm not prepared. You can take care of it. Of course, that's exactly what Boaz is hoping will happen, right? And it's what happens. Boaz marries Ruth. And then the text makes it clear. The Lord provides a son. There's much rejoicing. There will now be a continued line for Naomi's family through this son. But he's not just any son. He will become the grandfather of David the king. And then the book ends with a brief genealogy that goes all the way from Perez, who is a son of Judah, all the way to David. So that's what happens if we're talking about, like, you know, what's the content? What's going on in Ruth? There's bitter disappointment, surprising hope, a bold proposal, and then redemption and restoration. So what is, what is the message of Ruth? Well, to put it into two thoughts. One, the loyal love of the Lord never ceases. The loyal love of the Lord never ceases. It never stops. God's love for his people, even when everything seems like it's going all the wrong way, his love for his people doesn't stop. We even saw this in the cycle in the judges, even in sending them into judgment. When they cried out for help, he was ready to deliver them and to rescue them. And we see loyal love all over this book. There's loyal love that's shown by Ruth to Naomi when she says, no, I'm sticking with you. Loyal love shown by Boaz to Ruth to redeem her. But ultimately, there's loyal love that's shown by the Lord who's in charge the whole time. And even through bitter disappointment and devastating loss, The Lord is working out his plan to redeem and restore and to bless his people. There were decades of feeling like not blessed. We don't like living in that space. I don't like living in that space. I don't like 
10 minutes of living in that space, let alone 10 days or 10 years. But even in all those years where everything seemed dark, it seemed like God was against them. Naomi's going, the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. He's bringing her family into the family of the one who would redeem Israel. The loyal love of the Lord never ceases. And we need to remember this the most when we don't feel it. Just as Kim was an example to us this morning, saying, here's how God helped me this week with his word. That's what we need. We must keep running back to his word and going, yep, that's what's true. That's what's true. Because when we just look inside ourselves, we don't find much that's helpful. When we look around, we often don't find much that is helpful. We can get so lost and feel completely out of balance. And we come back home to God's word. Home to God through his word. And we are reoriented. We're set back the way that we're supposed to be. The loyal love of the Lord never Ceases, But then secondly, the Lord turns a curse into a blessing. The Lord turns a curse into a blessing. God knows how to work good, not just out of disasters that we face that are kind of outside us, but God knows how to work good out of even the wrong things that we do. And you say, well, what are the wrong things that happen in here? Well, Naomi and her family, you could make a case that they did a wrong thing by going to Moab when things were difficult. You could certainly make a case that the two sons of Naomi did a wrong thing by marrying women from Moab. But if Ruth had never been married to Malon, she never would have come home with Naomi and wouldn't have been part of the line of the Messiah. But it's not just turning around Naomi's fortunes. And it's not just about Ruth as an individual. Ruth is from Moab. That sounds familiar to us, right? It came up even last week in the Judges. Eglon, you remember him? Ehud was the left-handed guy and Eglon was the big guy whose body like ate the sword. In a manner of speaking. I just, we'll find a way to mention that like every week for a while. Eglon was the king of Moab. Moab, the very first Moab, was a son of Lot, Abraham's nephew. When Sodom went up in smoke and Lot's living in a cave with his two daughters and they decide they're the only people left on the earth and figure out how to repopulate the earth, Moab was born from Lot's older daughter. And then in the Exodus... As the children of Israel are coming into the promised land, they're passing along the east side of the Jordan. Moab, their land, was on the east side of the Jordan to the south. And so they were wanting to pass through Moab. And you remember the story of King Balak, who hired a prophet named Balaam to curse Israel? That's Moab. And of course... Balaam blessed the Israelites because God wasn't going to let his people be cursed. And then in Deuteronomy 23, 
we read these words. These are the words of the Lord. No Ammonite or Moabite, that's what Ruth is, no Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. That's a way of saying forever. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loved you. You shall not seek their peace, Moab's peace, or their prosperity all your days forever. So Ruth is someone who's not supposed to be allowed into God's people at all because of how her people had treated the Israelites. And yet, that's exactly what we see happen. Ruth is welcomed into God's people. More than that, She becomes part of the kingly line of David. And of course, we know now that she's in the line of Jesus. And so this isn't just like, Naomi, didn't you know you're not supposed to welcome somebody from Moab? Boaz, come on, man, she's a Moabitess. You can't do this. No, God was welcoming someone who had no business being part of his people. And isn't that exactly like God? Isn't that every one of our stories? That we have not shown him the kindness that he deserves. We have not shown him the submission, the obedience that he deserves. And we should be shut out from his presence forever. And he doesn't just say, that's okay. He sends his own son to take our place. To die for the sins that we have committed. So that we could be brought back to be with him. Through God's loyal love, shown particularly through Boaz, Naomi goes from empty to full. Ruth goes from outsider to insider. And the Lord provides a king for his people. And this is what happens for everyone who trusts in Jesus. So, Ruth and Jesus, the connections are like already there, right? But I want to think about it under two headings from the big idea. Costly redemption and complete restoration. So as we think about costly redemption, remember in chapter 4, these verses remind us this kinsman redeemer, the, the close relative who's allowed to redeem them, he's not doing it for himself. He's not doing it for his own name. His land is going to go back to them. Remember the first guy, the closer relative? He's like, no, I got to take care of my own stuff first. I got to take care of myself first. I have to take care of my own inheritance first. I have to take care of my own name first. And isn't it interesting? That guy doesn't have a name. He's just the closer relative where Boaz is named throughout the story and all the way down to the genealogies in Matthew. Boaz, who was willing to forfeit his name and his land in order to maintain the name of someone else, is known to this day. 
And it's part of the line of King David and the Messiah. While the other guy, who is so concerned about impairing his own inheritance and so refused to maintain the name of another, doesn't get a name at all. And of course, Boaz is meant to point us to Christ, who is our ultimate redeemer, who at great cost to himself, not just some money, but his own life saved his people from their sins. So Boaz is meant to be a picture of Jesus and his costly redemption of us. But I think Boaz is also meant for us to be an example to follow. And Mr. What's-His-Name is a pattern to avoid. There can be times that we become more concerned with our own name and our own reputation, our own character, what other people think of us, than the name of the Lord. Boaz is willing to take the financial hit. He's willing to marry the foreigner to raise up an heir for someone else. He's willing to be the means at great cost to himself of redemption for others. Now, of course, God was working this out the whole time, right? But as we say here a lot, God is sovereign and what we do matters. Our choices, our prayers, our actions, our obedience matters. And it's the same in this story. Yes, the Lord is working it all out. And he's working it through Ruth's loyal love to Naomi. Through Boaz's willingness to take the hit to be the Redeemer. It's the same here. So who is it that God is calling you to love? Even though you may never see a return on your investment. We love ROI, don't we? It's like, what am I going to get out of this? Is, this? is this a good investment for me? Well, are you moving toward someone for their good out of love for God and love for them? That is an investment worth making no matter what it ends up costing you. As Christians, we cannot afford to look at other people and decide whether they are worth it to us. And the way we learn how to do that is to see that Jesus looked at us and said, I'll give my life for you. Statistically speaking, we weren't worth it. We just weren't. And he loved us anyway. He gave his life for us. We may never see return on that investment in this life, but God sees and God knows, and God knows what he is doing and what he intends to, com- to accomplish through our work. It's while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. So there's costly redemption, but that's not all. There is complete restoration. There's complete restoration. In chapter 1, Naomi had lost both her husband and her son. She had no hope of the family name continuing, no one to inherit the family land. She says, I I went away full and came back empty. And now, through Ruth's loyal love to her, Boaz's costly redemption of Ruth, and God's providential care, her arms are full again. Did you notice in the verses that Steph read at the beginning? The baby ends up sitting on Naomi's lap. 
Naomi is the one holding this baby like she is the baby's mother. She is restored to joy where she had said, call me bitter, call me Mara. She's Naomi again. She's filled with joy. Her arms are full. And we're told that this baby will be a redeemer, a restorer of life to Naomi. That her name continues. Her arms are filled with a baby who represents now hope for her family. A son, an heir, a redeemer, one who will serve her. It's interesting. Obed's now called the redeemer. We're used to Boaz being the redeemer. He's he's a picture of Christ. They say, this is one who will redeem you. One who will serve you. A redeemer. A servant. Man, if I could just think of somebody later who was like that. All her hopes are centered in this little baby. Hope of someone to care for her. To carry on the family name, the land. This would happen, of course, and then some. I mean, if this were the end of the story, we'd say, that's a pretty great story. Right? I mean, that's amazing restoration. It's complete, but it gets even better. Right? David comes from this line. Jesus comes from this line. And as we sing every Christmas time, Jesus came to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. As empty as Naomi felt like she was, she was restored to even greater fullness. And this fullness was never just for her. It's for you. It's for me. Now the story of our lives may not tie up as neatly in the here and now as those of Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. But we have God's promise that one day they will. All the threads that seem flying out of control now will one day come together and will make sense. Maybe not before you go home, but after it will. Jesus is the guarantee of that promise. Because at great cost to himself, he has redeemed us. He's restoring us even now. And he will, when he comes again, bring complete restoration. So there's a way in which the story of Ruth is the story of the whole Bible. God created a good world and placed his people in his place for their joy and for his glory. They lost it all when Adam and Eve sinned. And with them, we lost it all too. Now, from birth, we are alienated from God and one another, living under the curse that God pronounced because of that first sin. But one day, another baby was born. This time, to a girl to whom God gave conception without the help of a man at all. And this baby would be God himself in the flesh, come down not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many, to save his people from their sins Through faith in Him and His sacrificial service for us on the cross, we find hope, we find help, and one day we will experience complete restoration with Him and all His people in the new heavens and the new earth. So let's hope in Him. He's the one who can turn your story around for His glory and for your joy. Let us place all our trust in Jesus. He's redeemed us from the curse. He's redeemed us from all our iniquities by becoming a curse for us. And let us live as His people, following in His steps. So as we wind down, let's think about Ruth 
and us. We've seen how the book of Ruth points us to Jesus, but what are we supposed to do today? Well, yes, we must trust in Jesus, our Redeemer. If you get nothing else, trust in Jesus, our Redeemer. At great cost to himself, he has bought us back to be his. He will bring complete restoration, but he is restoring us now. So what does it look like for us to be restored into his image, to look like our great Redeemer? This might seem like an odd application here, right after trust in Jesus, our Redeemer, but here it is. Treat women well. Treat women well. And I suppose this applies to you women, too. We need to treat women well. How do you say that? I didn't hear you say anything that would lead us in that direction here. Well, Bethlehem was a dangerous place to be a woman during the time of the judges. We saw last week that almost anywhere in Israel was a dangerous place to be a woman in the time of the judges. It grieves me when I read that Boaz had to go out of his way in chapter 2, verse 9, to tell his men not to touch Ruth. When he's assuring her, like, you're okay, make sure you stay here. Stay by the women gleaning in my field. I've told my men, don't touch her. Naomi notes the danger too. In chapter 2 and verse 22, when she says that if Ruth gleaned in another field, she would probably be assaulted. So even in the place where it's supposed to be God's people, there was danger just for being her, not because of anything she had done. And of course, as we look around our world today, it seems that not too much has changed. Sometimes even in the church. And so, one of the takeaways for us is that we should long for the day when all is made right and there is no fear, there's no need to look over your shoulder, to wonder what the man across from you intends. And for the men, let us love, respect, defend, and protect the women in our lives and the women who cross our paths. Let us be different than we were, different than we are by nature, and different than the world around us. And let us treat women well. But then let us welcome like we have been welcomed. Bethlehem was also a place where, as a general rule, an immigrant from Moab would not be welcomed. Here, though, we see Boaz, the Redeemer, welcome Ruth, the immigrant. There's something we could learn for this, from this. Remember, Ruth isn't just any immigrant, right? It's not just like, oh, Moab, you know, it's like some other country. She's from a nation which has acted as an enemy to Israel. And as we think even of our own part of our own city here in the Northeast, we have so many people coming to us from the nations. Many of those people coming from dangerous nations, dangerous for them, and for many of us we perceive dangerous to us. Thank you to so many of you who are caring for them, who are praying for them, who are moving 
toward them in love, who are helping them learn English, or who are watching kids so that other people can help them learn English, who are meeting with them, who are taking people to appointments, praying with them, caring for them, even if they don't yet share our faith in Jesus. I think God's bringing them to us for some of the same reasons that he brought Ruth home, so that she could belong to his people through the love of his people. It's not just the kindness of Boaz to Ruth that inspires us to love, though. It's the welcome that we have received into God's family through Jesus. Remember the guy in the moment who wanted his name remembered, and now we know Boaz's name instead, the one who was willing to be forgotten. The names we will know in heaven, aside from Jesus' name, probably are not the big names that we know of now. The people you think of as like, oh, they were a great Christian from the past, or they're a great Christian now. The ones we'll know then will be the ones who quietly loved their neighbor, were generous to the poor, the weak, and the marginalized with their time and with their money at cost to them. Not because they're so amazing or they're the best followers of Jesus, but because they know that Jesus became poor so that they might become rich. In God's good providence, costly redemption leads to complete restoration. God is keeping us. God is keeping you by his grace, even through our darkest days. He has redeemed us through the blood of his son. Even now, we are being restored. One day, everything will be made new. Everything will be made right. And all will be well. So keep trusting. Keep hoping. Even in the worst of times, God does what he does best. He saves He loves, he provides, he keeps until the end, and he does it all because of Jesus. Let's pray. Oh God, by your Spirit, would you assure us that Jesus' costly redemption of us will lead to our complete restoration. That however far we've strayed, however much we have lost, that by hoping in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for us, we will make it all the way home to fullness and to peace. And while we wait for Jesus to come again, would you help us to live like his people, following him in being willing to lose in order to win people to be our brother and our sister. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.